from the National Project on Race and Capitalism. Welcome to Season 2 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories and geographies, with your host, Michael Dawson. Abdullah Kirima is Professor Emeritus of African American Studies, formerly at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. His research has covered digital inequality, community informatics, African American intellectual history. He's a longtime community and movement organizer throughout the United States, including helping found People's College. His two most recent books are Black Toledo and a co-edited volume, The Wall Respect, Public Art and Black Liberation in 1960 Chicago. Welcome. Pleasure to talk with you again, and even if there are microphones in our face for a change. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to be with you. How have you been? Good, good. So there's been a upsurge in what you might call wave one in terms of organizing activities among black folks, what might look like a resurgence, at least in the spontaneous level of the black liberation movement over the past few years as we move into increasingly dire times. And one of the documents that I looked at to prepare for our conversation was report from the Black Liberation Struggle in 1975, planning document for pulling the, the cover off of imperialism. And the message in that document connecting the circumstances of black people in the United States to worldwide struggle against anti-imperialism seems very familiar, but I also looked at another document one on from the current Black Liberation Movement that was trying to re, that's trying to rebuild the Black Liberation Movement on what was called a Freedom Manifesto. So I thought we might start by comparing what's changed since 1975, what's remained the same, how do concepts such as capitalism, imperialism, oppressed people, and self-determination apply or don't apply today? Well, it's a, it's a very important question, particularly for some of us who were active then and are active now. <laughs> so there's a lot of self-reflection that goes on in, in answering that question. In, uh, in 1975, there, there was a period of time when organizations had been formed, ideological and political positions had been developed that not only reflected the change of the civil rights movement to the black liberation movement, but reflected also an upsurge in workers with the people in Detroit, the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement leading to the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, the Black Workers Congress, and so on. That had a big impact on black intellectuals. And one of the things we found out during that period is that black intellectuals were going to react to the movement as opposed to what some people often misunderstood as leading the movement. And so in 1975, we were able to bring together editors of journals, uh, leaders of organizations, and so on, to develop a position that would position black studies as uh, it was originally created as sort of a front of the black liberation movement, an intellectual arm of the black liberation movement. And so that was very important. Another aspect of that is that there was in the black movement this struggle of nationalism and Marxism. Mm -hmm. 
or the issue of whether or not it was a question of class or the question of racism as the principal aspect. I mean, nobody, I think, was arguing that it was one or the other. The question is, what was the principal aspect of it? And this was a, an attempt really to say that racism was a part of this imperialist system and couldn't be seen as something independent or autonomous or leading it. And that was a very important gathering. What we weren't clear about at that point is what was going to happen to the African national liberation movements once they became states. That was one aspect of it. And we suddenly discovered that these national liberation movements were multi-class movements and there were forces, and we used to make a distinction between a national bourgeoisie and a comprador bourgeoisie. And in any case, either wing of these bourgeoisies immediately renegotiated their position with regard to global capital. And that created a kind of a state policy that was very unfortunate in our eyes, and we were disoriented as a result of that. But even more profound was what was happening in relation to capital itself and the technological revolution. So you had, in the 60s, the emergence of a black worker insurgency was sort of the last wave of the industrial experience of black people. And so our full understanding of the society was based on that, the, the nature of cities, the nature of the ghetto, what organizations were important. And here in Chicago, that was very profound. The first congressional district, you know, was a base of the working class. Once the technological revolution started eliminating jobs, and suddenly Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, all of these centers of industrial power and black working class organization started getting disorganized. And people, not only was it disorganization in terms of the organizational aspect of it, but the ideological aspect of it became. And so you had then the resurgence of kind of a race-oriented nationalism that was sustained in these cities. And so part of the cultural movement and so on filled that gap. And so the Freedom Manifesto that we just published and are distributing actually includes this idea of the technological revolution. And what that creates is not a period of disappointment in our inability to have the old idea of a revolution, it creates new opportunities because now suddenly we have a fundamental shift in the organization of capital. It's their problem. In other words, as we all know, capital is a relationship that depends on the exploitation of labor. If you are eliminating labor, this is a deep crisis uh, in the sustainability of capitalism as we've known it. So this idea then of the black liberation movement in the context of this transformation of class relations makes the reform struggle much more important because in the past, the reform struggle produced the possibility of compromise and cooptation. Today, the homeless struggle is not going to produce new public housing initiatives, et cetera, to, to, to house the homeless. So the, the reform struggle is actually a much more profound challenge to capital. And so in the new manifesto, we lay out 15 or so battlefronts to try to connect the reform struggle to this idea of actually challenging capital 
because of the possibility of reform doesn't exist as it did going all the way back to the New Deal and, and, and so on. So in short, I know that was a long sort of <laughs> winding answer, but the bottom line is capital has changed. The global situation has changed so that in Africa, for example, the very organizations that we supported as representing the new horizon for the liberation of the continent and therefore the liberation of the African diaspora generally, whether it's Zimbabwe or South Africa or whatever, now suddenly they've turned into their opposite. So whether it's Mugabe or whether it's Zuma or whoever, they have these neoliberal policies that are now creating class struggle of a new type in those very countries. And so we're our new manifesto is trying to connect up with these new forces that are emerging on the continent and in the Caribbean. And these new forces are also emerging in places like Vietnam and China, as well as, I mean, it's a global, as you, as you point out, it's a global trend yeah. that capitals remake itself and made alliances in, with the leaders of the national liberation movements in many cases. Yeah. I have a question to follow up, but just one quick reflection. One, one, one of the aspects of your account that I find ironic is that at the time that people were organizing quite profoundly, as you mentioned, one of the examples I use in my work is the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, mm -hmm. some of the most advanced organizing at the time. There's a lot of critiques of the Black Panther Party for not focusing in on labor organizing and, and such. But actually, there not, that, there's a lot to criticize for the Black Panther Party, and we shouldn't romanticize any of the work that people were doing back then and should learn from it. But one of the aspects where they had some insights was well, they were saying that black workers were becoming disposable. And maybe the way they went about then organizing around the lumpen proletariat hat was problematic. But they saw the disposability of black workers and the changes in the economy in places like the Bay Area as something that I think people at the time may have missed and are just beginning to understand the consequences thereof. I agree very much with that. And, and the, the theoretical initiative around that very point, I think, was James Boggs mm -hmm. when he talked about the street force. Exactly. That the, the possibility of a sort of delinked section of the working class that had to fight for its survival created the possibility for a challenge to what he called the, the city as the black man's land. In other words, that was the territory that was in, in contention. And Boggs was also very clear about what he called automation, eliminating jobs and remaking the city itself and, yeah. and, and black and brown and other community, working class communities as well. So Box was in front, yeah, it was before, all, before almost anyone in trying to, in identifying these, these challenges and then trying to think about a strategy to address them as well. Well, and, and what's really interesting about Detroit in this regard, whether it's Boggs or it's General Baker or any number of other people is, we're talking about class conscious black workers. Mm -hmm. And that, that was a, a, an ingredient in the overall black movement that really challenged the middle class leadership that was the legacy of the civil rights movement. And it was that rare moment, you know, when the desired agent of change actually appeared on the scene. One of the key points you made a few minutes ago about the changes in capital and the reformulation of, of capitalism, I tend to use the term capitalist social order, but in some of the writings you talked about, it's a political, cultural, economics, not just economy. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the economic aspects of capitalism, 
there's certainly been a profound technological change, which I saw up close and personal when I worked in Silicon Valley for 10 years while I was organizing. But there's also been a reformulation of, as some would argue, some economists, some radical economists argue, of moving away from the commodity form just to options and risk. In other words, a financialization of capital where financial instruments in some ways are driving the, the are not just driving capital accumulation and uh, so the grandizement of capital throughout the world on a global scale, but it also have transformed lives. Mm. And just two examples is that most people in the United States who have any wealth whatsoever, it comes from one thing, their homes. Well, their homes are now based on, are dependent, the value in those homes are dependent on financial markets. We used to have pensions. We could retire from a job and have a pension. Now you don't have a pension, you have a, you have a stock market account. So securitization has profoundly affected millions of workers, and workers are tied to financial markets in ways they weren't before. How ha does that play into how we think about strategy and tactics moving forward in rebuilding a black liberation movement? Well, it's interesting. Language is very interesting. And what language do you use to describe a phenomenon? Because one way to describe what you just said is that they've turned into gambling. All this is gambling. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and, uh, and, we're, and we're the chips. Yeah, yeah. And so... The interesting thing about the crisis of a movement is where is the terra firma? Where do you actually base your understanding and your motion? So in trying to determine who are the fundamental agents of change at this historic moment is, is a critical question. Uh, so that because in the past, the whole question of, of factory workers and just talk about Lenin, you know, the big factory, the factory is our fortress. That was going to be the basis. That's where value was created. That's where the, the workers could actually change and, and challenge the system. That was the choke point in the system. Yes. Now we have a, a completely different situation. But it is the, the, as I said, the terra firma on the ground struggle of the masses of people, which is really the only way in which people can struggle. In other words, the banks, these financial institutions, ultimately are gambling on these homes and so on. So that the homeless movement and moving to seize these homes to take care of the immediate needs of people is the way in which the capitalist system can be exposed because all of these surplus resources that exist in the face of people in these communities, so that homeless people walk by boarded up homes all the time. The stores are full of food, but people live in food deserts. And so this challenge is going to be on the ground. And some of these, the gambling is going to be challenged, not on its own terms, but in terms of actually on the ground. And therein is the contradiction between a lot of the theorization that goes on about the system and the actual struggle and the agents of change that are on the ground. And there's two examples I can think of where these type of challenges are going on. One you point to in the Freedom Manifesto and some of the other documents, which is the anti-eviction movement. One of the things we saw in black communities like Chicago was people getting evicted, not because they were not paying their rent, but because landlords yeah. had gambled and lost, yeah. and the banks had said, time to pay up. Yeah. And then yeah. people who were paying their rent all of a sudden were homeless for, for no good reason. 
And so there's certainly been a movement. And that's, uh, as Toussaint Lothier, a young professor of African-American studies, has written about and participated in, the anti-eviction struggles are not just in the U.S. They're also in places like South Africa quite profoundly. In fact, we're learning from them. Yeah, the shack dwellers. <laughs> yeah. The other example, which is more of a, has a more of a somewhat working class, but also middle class aspect to it, people refusing to pay back their student loans. Student loans have been capitalized, and now that's becoming a growing movement where one generation may have had the <laughs> Vietnam War. The, mm-hmm. the problem mm-hmm. of people repaying hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases, of, of student loans is exposing mm-hmm. the nature of a system that they were taught throughout not just grade school and high school, but through their college careers was supposed to benefit them doing anything but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the... The crisis of, of debt is, is really, it seems to me, to be a, a real uh, fissure in the system because everything that's talked about in terms of economic expansion is often based on debt. And the question is, how, where's that line where debt cannot be repaid? And that, that's where suddenly, and what's interesting about the United States government is, who does the United States government owe to? It's the ruling class in this country as much as anybody. It's not just the Chinese, you know. And so there is this contradiction between the state, which which holds the debt, and the ruling class. And so these these contradictions are what are going to become even more extreme. And so your point about uh, the student loan, it's across the board. All forms of debt are going to become the real crisis in how to manage the consumption of the middle class and the working class because the consumption is one of the main mechanisms of social control. People still feel like the economy is good, society is good, I can buy a car, I can buy clothes, and so on. But when that debt stops, then suddenly you realize what the, what the actual condition of people in this country, what, what they are. And one thing we've seen over the last few weeks is, is aimed at the working class, particularly parts of the working class who have been disconnected from the economy, a rollback of even the minimum regulation of like payday loan over the last couple of weeks, of payday uh, loan yeah. restrictions such that it's open season now. Mm-hmm. We were in a conversation uh, yesterday about prisons, and one of the questions that I, I wanted to ask was, given this decreased demand for labor and given the increase in debt, and given the fact that the criminalization of the poor is going to far exceed the ability of these warehousing institutions called prisons to absorb all these people, what is going to be the next stage of social control? Is it going to be the geographical community that we see beginning to form in terms of the homogeneity of poor people being isolated in communities? Several years ago in Toledo, Ohio, there was a boulevard called Oakwood Boulevard that uh, the people called Cokewood Boulevard because of what was happening there. And at a certain point, sort of as an experiment, the police surrounded the ter- this neighborhood and had checkpoints and controlled people's access in and out. That happened in L.A. a number of times. And it was like it, it was almost an experiment for the future. And we see this in popular fiction, in movies and so on of isolating Manhattan or so on as a, as a, as a prison. 
So what's what's the future of this is an interesting question to me. Well, a lot of the theorizing on this was being done in places like MIT in the 1980s. Right after the urban crisis in the 1970s, there was a number of some popular articles in places like the New York Times Magazine, where they talk about urban triage. In other words, we're going to withdraw all services and all investments from these poor neighborhoods. And then I remember reading an academic article when I was in grad school called The City as a Sandbox, where you say you, you let these people do whatever they want, you build a perimeter around it, and if they come out outside of that perimeter, you crack down militarily. Mm-hmm. It's so important to think about the future because in some respects, the future is right now. Mm-hmm. And that's where people, in other words, the future is not yesterday. And that's, that's the contradiction that many black leaders, and I mean that in the sense of the mainstream leaders, the civil rights movement and so on, who are essentially arguing that liberal policies of change can put people back to work and we can rebuild the community. We can rebuild the institutions that really have been the basis on which we've had a black community, the church, small businesses, the block club. Block clubs, neighborhood organizations. I mean, on the West Side, when I used to be there, there was a BBR, the Boys Brotherhood Republic, you know, like uh, various forms of the YMCA. So this was how the community was, was created and, and sustained. But it really is a, an illusion that the past can be brought back. That was based on people working in the steel mills in Gary and in the government downtown. And the stockyards in Chicago and, and the post office as a big employer. And, mm-hmm, the government. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, Drake talked about, you know, the post, postal workers being, you know, the solid rock of those communities. I mean, that economy is not coming back. And we have to imagine what—I think one of the things that we have a harder time doing— it's imagining what the next type of community or what's next, how we can socially organize. So I think as people put it in the document, people are not oppressed any longer. That type of vi- those type of visions are, uh, have become fewer and far, far between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, again, going back to the difference between the 70s and now, the emergence of working class young people into higher education created a reaction and that reaction was part of a radicalization of their thinking because suddenly what was then called institutional racism was a was a shocking reality you know because the the ideology was if you are successful you'll get in these institutions and you're on your way to a comfortable successful future and suddenly people realized that this was a hostile environment But today, we have a slightly different path so that we've got, for example, large numbers of young people who have been socialized in suburban high schools and in not majority black environments, et cetera. And so even their dialect, their style is different and their accommodation to these environments is, is much greater. And so we have to really think about how that how radicalization of this group of people can possibly lead to reconnecting to the whatever words we want to use, the less fortunate, the working class, poor people. That's a critical aspect of this moment we're in. It's a critical aspect about black studies. I was just about to bring up the neoliberalization of black studies makes that a much harder task. Well, what's interesting is that you're absolutely right, except for the fact that 
whenever something happens, whether it's Katrina, whether it's Trayvon, these moments, then there's this outbreak of radicalization in black studies more than in any other aspect of higher education. That's true. It still and so has e- that potential. Even the most neoliberal, the high status people in black studies that are members of the Council on Foreign Affairs and other such organizations. Who could you be talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> these, these people are only useful to the extent that they can fill a void or they can be viewed as leaders. Mm-hmm. And as soon as an outbreak occurs, then suddenly the system has to look And so today what we have in the movement that we didn't have in the past is the NGO phenomena and the foundations. So that they're young people who just emerge in one or two campaigns who end up being paid $60,000 or $30,000 or large sums of money to become trainers of the trainers in this movement. And there are conferences that are fully paid so that people are used to hotel rooms, et cetera. Now, I know this sounds may sound trivial to some people, but in the past, the movement was self-reliant and therefore had a more realistic sense of itself than people who are used to being subsidized and therefore having one foot in the system and therefore actually looking for approval for what the next stage of a movement is because they need funding. That's the concept. And so we, we're, we're in a period now where the co-optation of the spontaneous movement is at a much higher level than it has been in the past. In the past, it has been extremely damaging. One of my colleagues and co-authors, Megan Mean Crassus, has studied the role philanthropy had on the NAACP. And she pointed out that a series of key grants move the NAACP away from working on criminal justice, lynching, and the like, to education. So, and that the leaders of the NAACP said, we would love to continue our work on, the, you know, on racism, the criminal justice system, and injustice. And the philanthropy said, absolutely not. Well, see, I think the control of organizations, even beyond what you just mentioned, to the role of the CIA and other ways in which uh, organizations like AMSAC and cultural activities have been influenced. Today we have at the individual level the really an aggressive way so that if you take the, the Black Lives Matter movement or you take Black Lives Movement, you take the gay movement, there is an aggressive way in which individuals are funded to create organizations. And it seems to me that it's only at the level of identifying the, the most exploited and the spontaneous motion of the most exploited that the possibility of having an autonomous movement exists. You talk about an autonomous movement. How do we think about self-determination in this period? Well, first of all, what we're talking about is essentially the struggle of people to survive in this period. And taking the the broad movement and putting it in the context of the actual struggles, like, for example, we can talk about the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about the environmental movement in terms of on-the-ground, impoverished impoverished black people, we're talking about open raw sewage in somebody's front yard. We're really talking about a day-to-day struggle for survival. And the 
the question of, of self-determination is the extent to which a community can self-organize and determine what is the path forward for that survival to take place. Now, we have in the past talked about self-determination coming out of the Third International, where it, the phrase was, up to and including secession. And so we had this image that black people could have this autonomous experience, independent of whatever state structure of the United States, we could form our own nation and therefore survive. This is, you know, not at this point what the conversation is. What the conversation is, is how do you deal with a food desert? How do you deal with urban gardening and an organization of a community to survive? That's the level at which the movement is currently trying to, to, to implement self-determination. The bigger question of the social transformation of the country has to do with how the black movement is going to relate to all the other social movements fighting for transformation. And here where we have this issue of the long-standing struggle in this country of people who say the principal issue is class struggle and everybody else has to subordinate their demands and, and so on to that. On the other hand, you have the nationalist impulse in the black community that says, don't trust them at all, don't trust any other aspect, we have to be really autonomous, et cetera. And I think self-determination really begins to point to the fact that at the table of agents of change, you can't expect anybody to represent your interest unless you're there. And so the question is, how do you fight and elbow your way to get at the table, but at the same time, understand the relationship between your survival and everybody else's survival? And that's been the, really the magic of the black liberation movement historically, that every time black people have moved, the connection was made for all the other groups and ways of conceiving of the society began to move in concert. And so, you know, the self-determination really gets back to the survival of black people and how that can fit, fit into the overall social transformation that, you know, we need. And part of the reason that when black people begin to move, other movements are also energized to a significant degree. Just to use an obvious example that is that black people were workers. <laughs> so if you cannot address the black condition, if you don't address what was going on in the 1950s and 1960s of black people at work. You can't talk about addressing the needs of black people. You aren't talking about patriarchy. You aren't talking about, about the about gender. So, and it, but it's also true, black people were sharecroppers. Yeah. And again, a general category throughout the South and with small farmers and, you know, so the, the interesting thing is that black particularity is always somehow divorced from the universal. And that mm -hmm. philosophically, that's, that's the thing. How do you see the particularity in relation to the universal? Yes, and the universe is going to be manifested in a number of different aspects depending on the concrete conditions on the ground at the time. Right. And that's something that some of our co colleagues, if I'm going to be charitable, have been too narrow-minded to understand. So let's change tack a bit. For somebody who's allegedly emeritus, you've been very active in publishing. <laughs> and you have two books that have come out recently. Let's start. Let's talk a little bit about, and this is, we'll continue about what's changed and what has stayed the same. You were instrumental back in the day 
with the wall respect and there's been an edited volume that you co-edited that just came out in 2017 about the wall respect and, and black liberation in Chicago in the 1960s. Can you say more about both the historical experience and what we can learn from it? Yeah, the the wall of respect. First of all, I was a graduate student <laughs> during this period and I met two people. One is Conrad Kent Rivers, a poet, and Hoyt Fuller, who was the editor of Negro Digest. And I was sort of their young militant intellectual. And the University of Chicago had a very important love-hate relationship with the black community and people. I'm a little confused because I don't remember the love part of it, but go ahead. Well, (laughs) the love part of it was the fact that so many black people of importance came out of here. Ah, okay. And so, you know, I mean, people didn't know what was happening here, but there was that, you know, so when Mm -hmm. people looked at me as a young person who was there weren't a lot of black people around when I was a graduate student here. And and so that led to our talking about culture and the role of culture. And so we formed this organization called OBASI, the Organization of Black American Culture. And one of the workshops was a visual arts workshop. And what was interesting is that artists tended to work alone. And there was also, they were creating commodities, and so there was competition. Some people were selling their work and others weren't and yeah. so forth. Some were accepted. and But the politics of the moment, the black power moment, was something that pulled people together. It wasn't the art. It was the politics. Was this the middle 60s? Yes. So we're talking about 65, 66, leading into 67 when the Wall of Respect was done. Mm-hmm. And 67 was very important for a lot of reasons. Aretha came out with respect. John Coltrane died in July. The black power, as I said, the insurrections in Detroit and Newark happened. And the wall of respect was created in that environment. And it was, I, I really, I think of the, uh, the ghost dance of the Lakota people. Here's a context where people just started dancing. And that went all the way to the White House. They were worried. When the wall of respect was painted, that went all the way to City Hall. They were worried. And part of it was, the again, a, a kind of a self-determination in defining the heroes and sheroes of the black community. And there were debates among the artists, and it was basic agreement that we were talking about a Malcolm, a black liberation, as opposed to a civil rights uh, approach. And... The wall became a, created a space for the black movement to celebrate itself and to have a reconnection to that 43rd Street on the south side of Chicago, which was a blues street. Mm-hmm. Teresa's Blues Club had relocated from near 47th Street to on 43rd Street. It was Muddy Waters Drive. It was renamed Muddy Waters Drive. So that was a connection so that the AACM, that is the herb tea and orange juice crowd, was playing in joints, that the blues joints, and it was a music that connected people, and the music connected to the wall of respect. So it was really a, a powerful generational statement. But what happened is the wall then, as a political act, led to a group of artists then forming Afri-Cobra, which came out of the visual arts workshop, and Afri-Cobra then was an initiative and an innovation in aesthetics. 
So they began to talk about a common aesthetics. They talked about color and style and Kool-Aid colors. And, and in this whole period, I started talking about a philosophical concept trying to call black experientialism. In other words, what we were trying to do is to break through all of the confusion to get to the black experience itself and to, 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 to raise up aesthetics, to raise up things from that. We're working on a poet now named Amos Moore. And one of the things that he used to say when people were trying to find out what was the black aesthetic, et cetera, his whole point was, go to the black community and look around. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a mystical thing. It's not magic. It's, it's there. Look at, look at the clothes people are wearing. What colors do people like? I mean, that's the black aesthetic. And so that's what we were really trying to do, is to profoundly get away from this middle-class appropriation and socialization of people toward a norm that was created in order to be accepted. Get away from respectability politics. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's the point. And we see those same types of struggles again today. Of course, you know, the degree to which things are commodified is even more profound. Black art of various types. Uh, there's a black artist I happen to like, but, you know, you buy in at a million dollars or two million dollars, and he represents the U.S. At the, at the Venice Biennial. So the commodification of everything from rap to, to black abstract art shapes a lot of what people do artistically today. But that aesthetic is still out there, still out there on the streets. Mm. This commodification process is really the death grip of capitalism because it creates this, this magnetism of people because you can use these commodities to live the kind of life that you've imagined or that's imagined for you as the good life. And the opposite of that is the good life is inherent in social relations among people. That is the lived experience among people as opposed to the acquisition of things and the acquisition of environments. You know, it's cold now. How many people want to go fly off somewhere where it's warm? And that's, that's the world in which we're taught to live in. And I think the wall of respect was a, a profound negation of that commodification because the mural movement became a, a use value for the community. And the Wall of Respect was totally financed by the artists. Mm -hmm. Now, right after that, they commodified murals by creating a cash flow from the government to committees, and artists had to submit proposals because it costs money to buy the scaffolding, to rent the scaffolding, et cetera. So they commodified it. Then they started bringing artists from L.A. to come to Chicago to do murals. And then it was suddenly not the community itself representing itself. It was like you did a mural in order to be part of a movie set or something. So it changed. But the interesting thing about the people is that always one step ahead. And so the commodification of, of, of all this followed the innovation. And so now the question is, where's the next innovation going to come from? You know, I, I, I don't often quote Jesse Jackson, but keep hope alive. <laughs> <laughs> so let's end on a question that I'm going to try to tie it a bit into your book on Black Toledo, which is a political, cultural, social history of the black community in Toledo, where you worked and organized for quite a while. Toledo is 
black, Toledo's black community certainly has a, all communities have their own particularities, but have a lot of similarities to black communities in the U.S. Given what we've seen in right-wing populist movements in Hungary, in Austria, in the United Kingdom, and in the United States, move where, at the very least, we see authoritarianism was tied to a renegade capitalism, a gambling capitalism, use your phrase, and a virulent uh, reintroduction of white supremacy, both through globally through various imperialist policies and domestic rep- oppression and repression. What are black communities like Toledo, like Chicago's, like throughout the United States and globally facing that? I don't know. What's next? Well, what's interesting about these working class black communities is just how rich they were. When I moved to Toledo, there were some time, there were, there were about 40 full-time jazz clubs in the United States. Two were in Toledo. I mean, it's fabulous. There was a tradition there of, because it's a crossroads in the United States, of culture. The bands, the big bands would often come to Toledo. The other aspect is, is that like many Ohio cities, they were really part of the political economy of Detroit. So Toledo was glass, mm-hmm. like Youngstown, but it was rubber. Right, 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 right. And so, and there was strong union representation. Well, now what we get is boarded up factories. The unions aren't as strong. And the culture is diminished. And the black community is declining in many of these cities, like Chicago, like Detroit. They're black cities, but they're not as powerful as they once were. And the... I think the future, in part, is uh, we're going through a stage where black leadership takes over these institutions and become mayors, et cetera, to administer and become the face of these austerity programs and the cutback of public, the, the cutback of the public, whether it's schools, whether it's hospitals, whether it's parks. In some cases, water. Water. Fundamental issues here. I think the, again, the question is what I mentioned earlier is, are these going to become new forms of incarcerated spaces with minimization of all the social services, et cetera? On the other hand, on the other hand, the people who survive these disaster communities, these no-go zones, may turn out to be the source of leadership for a new stage of struggle. Life tends to, like in nature, like plants, affirm itself. As long as the sun is shining, there is a possibility. And so I don't think that the, like the murder that's going on in the black community and the terrible experience people are having, et cetera, they, that might turn out to be the socialization of a new generation of people who are more fearless and more oriented to a strategic understanding of going up against the state than we've had thus far. But again, it's a, that's a keep hope alive. That's a, that's a vision beyond the correlation of statistics that people might be gathering at the moment. One of my colleagues in the Racial Studies Center here, and in fact, the director of the, of the center, Kathy Cohen, who's been quite active in a number of these movements, 
is doing work on political knowledge, and many of the mainstream political scientists are very upset with her work. She makes the argument that black street youth have a better understanding of the state and, and, its, and its nature than someone who can tell you who the state representative is, mm-hmm. who's totally d- divorced from day-to-day struggle for survival, as you put it, and she would agree, day-to-day struggle struggle to not just for survival, but to make a better life for yourself, your family, your community. And that's where knowledge, those are forms of knowledge that are in the side of the academy we discount all too often. Well, the, the, this, this question of, of are you acquiring knowledge and socialization and behavior that goes along with that knowledge to become part of the system Or are you understanding the strategic nature of how the system is working and how it ought to work if you can change it to meet your own needs and expectations? And I think in terms of keeping hope alive, one of the things I would argue we need to start working on, I know people are working on it, is that for all this problems, for all the the misleadership of the 1960s, 1950s, of the 20th century, there were models of what a future could look like, what a better future could look like, whether it was a nationalist better future, whether it was a communist better future. Mm -hmm. There were people who say, this is what we're fighting for. Mm -hmm. This is what we're organizing for. This is what we're trying to move toward. Mm -hmm. We need to regain that. Well, what's interesting is that that vision became a prison because it was the question of trying to replicate yes. something and, and serving that. And even in the 60s, we rejected the Soviet Union, but then followed China or Cuba. And so today, there is no state theory that represents the path forward for humanity. That means we have to figure it out on our own, Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's what's so wonderful and challenging today. Yes. But, here's, here's the but, the fact that we have people in the academy and we have intellectuals who are theorizing and doing research, et cetera, again, this goes back to an earlier point I was making, is that the error can be that they can think of themselves as leading the process, independent of the idea that ideas become a material force when they're taken up by the agents of change in the society. And that's the key. The key is how can black intellectuals and intellectuals generally connect up with these forces in society that are most exploited, the highest probability of not being educated. We have to overcome the connection because to a lot of people they would say, oh, you're just dreaming because people are not educated. They're not going to read our books. They're not going to listen to our lectures. And without seeing it, that's the problem. Write books that they will read. (laughs) What a revolutionary idea. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Abdul. It's been wonderful as usual. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on racingcapitalism.com, that is racingcapitalism.com, to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes, and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.